six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from under. Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your host, Jade Isiri Ramos, and today's show is pre-recorded, which just means we're not taking calls during the hour. Today's guest has a new book out that shows how a century of redlining, disinvestment, and incarceration led to devastation in D.C.'s Black community and made way for the gentrification that is currently taking place in the city. Tanya Marie Golash-Boza is the executive director of the University of California Washington Center and a professor of and a professor of sociology at the University of California, Merced. She is the author of five books that engage with issues such as racism, immigration policies, human rights, and the race and race in Latin America. Tanya was on the program in um, 2017 about her book, Deported, Immigrant Policing, Disposal, Disposable Labor, and Global Capitalism. Today, she is coming back to A Public Affair to talk about her latest book, Before Gentrification, The Creation of D.C.'s Racial Wealth Gap. Welcome to the program, Tanya. Thank you, Jade. It's great to be here. Ooh, and look at that. We got the, we got the sirens <laughs> starting us off. Um, Tanya, can you place yourself in this story a little bit? I know at the beginning of your book, you say, you know, mostly you don't center yourself in the book or you don't really talk about how you're placed um, within your research, but this book was different for you. Yeah, so um, I wrote I wrote this book um, for some personal reasons. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I grew up in a majority Black neighborhood called Petworth in the 1980s. And um, I went off to college, um, graduate school, and had a whole career. But and I, so I haven't really lived in the city um, this century. Um, but I have come back a lot. I came back um, to visit my parents, to visit family, to visit friends. And each, each time I'd come back, I'd notice um, that the city had changed. And I'd also notice that the neighborhood where I grew up had fewer and fewer Black people each time that I came back. So that caused me to ask, you know, what happened um, to my neighbors? Um, where, you know, where do they go? Um, how are they faring in um, this changing city? So so the re the motivations for writing this book were personal insofar as um, questions I had about people I know, like what happened to the people that I know, the people that I grew up with, um, how, ma how many of them are able to stay in the neighborhood, why do they leave, um, and why have so many of them gone to prison, and why have so few of them had the um, career successes that I've had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess let's go back to the, the beginning, right? You um, you're following generations of Black families who live in D.C. in specific neighborhoods. Um, so if we go back to the beginning, how how did Black families move into D.C. and um, what neighborhoods did they um, originally find? Yeah, so the neighborhood, the neighborhood that I grew up in was um, majority Black when my family moved in in 1976. And when I moved in, I heard people say, you know, this neighborhood used to have a lot of white people in it. The school used to be majority white. It was really hard to imagine that at that time because the neighborhood was decidedly not white when we, when we moved in. But then through the research that I was able to do, I learned that, oh, wow, like the neighborhood that I lived in, um, that I grew up in, Petworth, as well as several other neighborhoods in the city had been 
exclusively white. Actually, um, the homes were built with these covenants in the deed that would say specifically, you know, these homes may not be sold to Negro or colored people, um, in a different language, but basically the homes were specifically um, constructed, developed for white people. Um, but the, those racially restrictive covenants, um, there was a court case in 1948 and the Supreme Court decided that those covenants were not legally enforceable. So um, now a home buyer couldn't say, you know, I'm not going to sell the home to you because you're black. Um, of course, you know, the racial discrimination in housing continued, but that that one barrier was removed. Um, and I thought that, that that would be when the neighborhood began to change. But actually looking closely at the data, I realized that the change actually happened um, after the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision, which was the desegregation of public schools. So a few years after the covenants were lifted, there was another really important decision that just basically stated that children could go to any school regardless of their race. So the schools in that neighborhood had been exclusively white. But once black children were able to go to those schools, the neighborhoods changed really quickly and they became um, majority black, you know, in a couple of years, really. Like it happened very, very quickly. But the interesting thing about that is, um, of course, white flight is troubling to think about, but the flip side of it is it did open up home ownership opportunities for black people. So uh, white people were selling their homes, um, which they hadn't been doing previously. So um, middle-class African-Americans, even working-class African-Americans were able to purchase homes in these neighborhoods experiencing white flight in the 1950s and 1960s. Yeah, you... Um you mentioned that sort of the the like immediate fear that happens and I, you know white flight isn't like a new concept to me um but your your book really lays out that it it happened fast that white families left the area um, yeah it happened very fast and happened right and i think that what, what was interesting to me or new was that it was really the school desegregation i was yeah. like oh that makes sense yeah 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 absolutely um so you have these let's break down the um, the the neighborhoods that you're you're talking about, right? Because the neighborhoods, while they are, um, they have the the similarity that there's a high concentration of black families living in the area. They're almost entirely um, black families. They are, you know, vastly different in other ways. Um, so maybe I don't know if you wanna. I don't know what would be a great way for you to break down what those neighborhoods are. But um, if you can familiarize us with the neighborhoods, maybe you know, in the fifties. Yeah, absolutely. And there really are two kinds of neighborhoods that we're mm -hmm. thinking about. There's, I look at about five different neighborhoods, but really they fall into two categories. So the first one is the kind of category I just talked about where previously white, and these are home, these are neighborhoods with brick houses, tree-lined streets, parks. Um, basically they were nice neighborhoods. Um, and then there's another set of neighborhoods though. Some of, and th th this other set of neighborhoods was um, much poorer and it is interesting to sort of think about the backstory to those neighborhoods too, because one of the neighborhoods is called Berry Farm. And this neighborhood actually was settled by black homeowners, um, but relatively low income black homeowners. And th th their neighborhood was declared blighted and actually destroyed by the federal government and public housing was built in its place. And then there's another neighborhood not too far from Berry Farm called Navy Yard. And that was a racially integrated uh, working class neighborhood. 
basically people that worked in the Navy Yard and they had built their own homes. And again, that neighborhood was also declared blighted and then destroyed. And then public housing was built in this place. But the interesting thing about public housing that was built in the 1950s in Washington, D.C., is, you know, if you're like me, grew up in the 1980s or after, you think of public housing and you think of concentrated poverty and blight and violence. But what's interesting is that when public housing was first built, it was built with this purpose of providing housing for working people. And, and Berry Farm um, Housing Project, as well as the housing project in a Navy Yard called um, Capper's Housing Project, they were actually very nice facilities when they were first built. Um, and they were built for working families and had beautiful gardens and great communities. So those neighborhoods, so the similarity between the neighborhoods is, is that the neighborhoods experiencing white flight were nice um, home owning communities and the ones with public housing were nice public housing communities. But what the what happened in both of those neighborhoods is beginning by the 70s and 1980s, they began to experience disinvestment, which led to um, all kinds of problems in both of those neighborhoods, but slightly different backstories, but kind of they, they began to confer, converge in interesting ways. Yeah, so so this, uh... You're sort of you're sort of talking about what you call as like Generation One, in mm -hmm. um in your book, right? So that Generation One are people who are living in these relatively nice um, public housing that that are built or that are homeowners. Um, and then what what happens to their to the generation next? You you sort of touched on it just now. Disinvestment happened. What did that look like? Um, and I guess why other than racism did it did it happen yeah i mean i think racism is the yeah. main answer to, to that but um so in the middle class neighborhoods you know these neighborhoods were had really excellent schools um in the 1950s and 1960s and again one thing that we don't think about today because it just seems so outlandish but in the 1950s and 1960s high-ranking politicians, you know, even, even the president sent their child to public schools. So these, so public schools were, were really considered a public good. It wasn't something that like you wanted to avoid at all costs. Um, there weren't that many private schools, you know, basically everyone was together at the public school. So these public schools were really good public schools. Um, but what happened is as the public school system in Washington, DC went from a segregated school system, one school system for whites and one school system to blacks for blacks to, a uh, that was a de jure um, segregation to now we have de facto segregation. And by 1970, the DC public school system was 97% black. So it was basically a public school system only serving black, the black community. So between 1954 and 1970, the public school system went from 100,000 pupils to 150,000 pupils. And it went from half white, half black to all, almost all black. And what happened is the school system although it increased the number of students significantly, there really wasn't a, a, a concomitant investment. So the schools, you know, they didn't, they didn't immediately decline, but really between like throughout the 1970s, you begin to see, um, you know, teachers that are being, that are retiring are not being replaced with highly qualified instructors. The buildings are starting to be dilapidated. They're not being fixed. Um, the, the books are not being replaced. So basically the schools are experiencing disinvestment, which just means that the government is not investing money into the schools and they're slowly declining. And the same thing is happening with the public housing. The public housing projects that were built, um, actually they were built, some of them were built for whites. They were Some of them were built for blacks. They were built segregated. But as the public housing system became actually like 
99% black, we see a similar process where um, the government stopped investing in public housing. And public housing was actually even a little more straightforward. Basically, um, Nixon decided, you know, we're not going to build any more public housing and we're not going to give them any more money. Basically, what we're going to do is the only money that public housing is going to have for upkeep is going to be the rent that they collect. But of course, they only collect a small amount of rent because it's supposed to be low-income subsidized housing. So that so there wasn't enough money being put into public housing in order to maintain um, these buildings that have been built. So you see disinvestment in public housing, disinvestment in public schools, and both of which are almost exclusively serving the Black community in Washington, D.C. If you are just tuning in, I am your host, Jade Siri Ramos. And today I'm speaking with Tanya Marie Golash-Boza, She's the author of the new book, Before Gentrification, the Creation of D.C.'s Racial Wealth Gap. Today's show is pre-recorded, which means we are not taking calls during the hour. However, as always, you can email talk at wortfm.org if you have any comments or questions. Tanya, you are setting up a situation where schools and public housing are um, being divested in. What does that look like for, you know, specifically the, the young people, the the children and then the teenagers um, who are experiencing that as their homes and their and their schools? Yeah, so I interviewed um, African-Americans who went to um, Roosevelt High School, for example, in the 1950s and 1960s. And they would talk about how dedicated their teachers were, how there were all these advanced placement classes, how the honors track was just amazing, and how they and their classmates went on to Oberlin, to Michigan, to University of Maryland, to Howard, you know, to all these excellent schools. And and the way that they talk about their school as just a site of um, of black excellence, of education, right? And then you talk to someone who went to Roosevelt in the 1980s, and there's like there were no you know, almost no AP classes. Actually, in I think 1990, like no students passed the advanced placement exam at Roosevelt High School. There was a shooting outside the school. Um, there was kidnapping during the lunch hour. Um, the the school's leaking. There's rodents in the basement, right? So just like the the complete turnaround of the school from the night from 1960 to 1980 is really remarkable. And and I think about it is these are these are really the same families, right? These are the families that moved in in the 1960s. And then now, you know, those whose children were able to go to the schools in the 1950s and 60s really did get an excellent education. But those families that chose to stay in the neighborhood by the time you get to the 1980s and the 1990s, the school system is really, and this is just kind of universally, like if you read the newspapers, you read the reports from the schools, everybody's just basically saying, DC public school system is not serving um, pupils. Um, but if you read the reports from the 50s and 60s, it's about blue ribbon schools and science fairs, and, you know, all these amazing things that are happening. And it's just a very quick turnover from truly excellent education to um, truly poor education. And that inevitably leads to violence, yeah, it, it, like and survival. Yeah, I mean, I, I and we see specific examples of this. So, for example, I talked to this um, guy, uh, Troy. He went to Coolidge High School, which is not too far from Roosevelt High School. And you know, he said he he grew up in a family. His his mother was um, a journalist, actually, and um, he grew up in a middle class family. His grandparents, both sets of his grandparents, owned homes in the neighborhood. His mother owned a home um, in a very nice um, upper middle class black neighborhood. 
and he went to the local school. And when he first got there, he was on the football team and you know, he, he had done well in school his whole life. He had been in the gifted classes, but he's on the football team and um, you know, he's 14 year old boy bored. And, uh, but then he's, he, his coach stopped showing up for practice. Right. So he's like, now he gets out of school at three o'clock. He goes to football team. The coach isn't there. You know, he gets kind of you know, bored. So then he goes home and, um, and he finds that there are opportunities for him to sell drugs, right? So if you give a 14 or 15 year old boy the opportunity to make literally a thousand dollars a week, and I'm like, and there's nothing else really interesting going on in the neighborhood, it's really not surprising that a lot of these young men did begin to sell drugs. This, this is in crack cocaine arrived in DC in the mid 1980s, and it kind of upset the drug market, and it just became a, a way to make a ton of cash for um, for young folks. So a lot of these guys. Um, did begin to sell drugs. And um, unfortunately, the crack cocaine market also led to turf wars, and which in turn led to gun violence. So yeah, there's really a direct connection between we don't invest in the schools, we don't invest in the community centers, and now you got all these bored teenagers, and then the crack cocaine arrives into the city just at that time, and it provides this other opportunity for excitement and for money making. And a lot of the young men, the young boys really turn to that, um, which of course had devastating consequences for them. Yeah. I mean, I think you, if there's nothing to do and you're making a thousand dollars a week, it doesn't, it, it seems too, too good to pass up. Also, you know, you're, you're a teenager, you don't have the ability to really think of your future, um, in that way. You're thinking about your immediate, um, you, so, so you mentioned like this, the, the drugs that come in, um, and then what happens, you know, we all know is the drugs, uh, the war against drugs. Um, how did the war against drugs? Well, actually, before we get to the war on drugs, I really um, I think what's interesting about your about D.C. is that it's not it's it's sort of governed by the federal government. I think maybe before we talk about what happens with the war on drugs, how is D how is D.C. different than like, you know, Chicago, right, a city who is has a state who is overseeing them. Yeah, and it has changed over, yeah. it has changed over time. So for example, um, between 1954 and 1970, when I was just explaining that the government wasn't investing in schools, during that time, DC did not even control its own budget. We didn't have any local elected officials. Really, Congress was controlling the city. But then in 1975, um, we passed this thing called Home Rule, which means that, okay, now DC, you get to vote in a school board, you get to vote in a mayor, you get to vote in a city council. So we did, so beginning in 1975, DC now has its own city council. Um, it still doesn't have a congressional representative. I mean, it has a congressional representative, but a non-voting one and no representation in the Senate. Um, so in that context, DC now can pass its own laws, but Congress retains veto power both over budget appropriations and over any laws that we pass. Actually, recently, D.C. passed um, a new crime bill designed to sort of improve our um, our, our, our laws, um, really just to kind of straighten them up, clean them up a little bit, make them less archaic, and Congress overturned it, right? So that continues to this day where, um, and, the, and the thing about that that's particularly egregious is when I was growing up in D.C. in the 1980s, um, I honestly didn't know any Republicans. Like, like there were no, there were like, 
the city was maybe like 1% Republican, just like all Democrat, right? Which is not, I mean, just typical of cities, but DC in particular, because it was majority black and just all Democrats. And Congress is not all Democrat, right? Congress is about 50, just generally 50% Republican, 50% Democrat. So basically um, our laws can be overturned by a body that doesn't represent um, the same viewpoints of, um, of the citizens of Washington, DC. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's get to the the war on drugs now. Um, so so you set up the situation that we're in of how DC is governed, um, and that because of a lack in lack of investment in schools and in housing, you have a lot of um, mostly young black men. Though you touch in your your um, book that the drug trade doesn't just affect um, men. So what happens when there becomes a really a huge push to get drugs off the street and in a criminalized way? Yeah. And, you know, the D.C. at the time the was governed um, mostly by um, black mayor, always had a black mayor and then also mostly black city council members. And when you read their appeals, you know, they would say, you know, D.C. is in a crisis mode. We have the HIV AIDS crisis. We have the crack cocaine crisis. We have you know, drug addiction. We have failing schools. We need we need money for community centers. We need money for schools. We need um, and then they would say, you know, we need more police officers. And it's really only that last call that was answered. Right. So these communities that had experienced extreme disinvestment. So there had, there was no money to fix the leaky roofs. There's no money to get rodents out of the basement of the, of the cafeteria and the high school. But all of a sudden there's plenty of money to invest in policing. And actually Congress at one point even mandated that DC hire 1200 more police officers in order to get its budget appropriation for the year. Right. So Congress really was like, you all need more police. Here's more money for more police. Have as much money as you want, basically, for policing. So, um, so that's what I call carceral investment. So we go from disinvestment to now, or now we're going to invest in the city. But basically, here's what you get: you get more courts, more police officers, more prisons, more jails. Um, so the the war on drugs in Washington D.C. hit. I mean, it hit very, very hard. By 1997, 50 of young black men in Washington, D.C. were in the grips of the carceral system. So there, it just had a very extensive reach and um, across the city, across economic classes, um, but almost exclusively affecting African-Americans. By 1994, D.C. had the highest incarceration rate in the world and black men had were incarcerated at 36 times the rate of white men. So it's really just almost exclusively focusing on black youth, black boys and black men, and to some extent on black women, but white people pretty much were not um, directly affected by this wave of mass incarceration in the city. Right. And it's not, um, this, this part isn't necessarily specific to DC. um, But one of the things that so I, I often read books that I um, am reading for a public affair with my husband nearby. And occasionally there'll be something where I'm like, I have to read you this moment. Um, and so the moment in this book was, as you're talking about the war on drugs, that um, the amount the, uh, the amount that was a felony of different um, drugs is, is wild, right? Um, I think you mentioned in the book that it was a you know felony to have like 100 grams of cocaine and it was a felony to have, is it 
10 grams or one I think it's gram? five. Five is grams. It, is, it, is it the hundred to one? No, one. It's one gram of crack cocaine. Yeah. One gram. Um, and how racialized that that discrepancy is. Yeah, you know, I always tell my students I'm, when I teach that, I'm like, I'm like, do you know how much 100 grams of cocaine is? I'm like, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a lot. It's a lot of cocaine. And so for, yeah, so the 100 to 1 disparity was tremendous, right? Because like one gram, okay, it's not that much. It could be for personal use. It could be, you know, it could be for anything. But 100 grams, I'm like, that's that's a lot of cocaine. So for to have one gram of crack be equated to 100 grams of cocaine and crack is really just diluted. Right. Cocaine. So like, right. Yeah. Right. Um, but incredibly, incredibly racialized um, yeah. at the time. I mean, uh, yeah. Um, if you are just tuning in, you're listening to A Public Affair. I am your host, Jada Siri Ramos. And joining me today is uh, Tanya Golesh Bozal talking about her new book, Before Gentrification, the Creation of DC's Racial Wealth Gap. Um, you So as we're talking about the war on drugs and this over-incarceration of black men, um, how does like where do the houses play come to play in here right because there's families who maybe their their families own houses but this sort of incarceration and this moment in their uh, familial history um it can disrupt that home ownership yeah yeah and that, that was one of the one of the main motivations for writing the book was a story of um, a friend of mine growing up so one of my friends from high school, um, you know, we, I used to hang out at her house all the time and she lived in this beautiful home in this, in this nice integrated neighborhood called Mount Pleasant. And, um, and I always remember that home was just such a like sanctuary for their family. Um, there'd always be aunts and uncles coming in and out, cousins running in and out. Her grandmother lived there, her mother lived there, her sister lived there, her niece lived there. It was a big house and a lot of people kind of always coming through. Um, but in um, the early 1990s, her brother was arrested on, um, on drug charges. And by that time, her brother was about 25 and he was no longer living in the house. You know, he was 25 years old and he was selling drugs, but and he, and he had, so he had money and he lived elsewhere. He lived in an apartment um, elsewhere. But the police department, or the, not really the police, but the, um, the FBI and the um, and the Drug Enforcement Administration decided that he was dealing drugs out of the house. Um, so they confiscated the house through um, an asset forfeiture program. Um, so that was just, you know, mind blowing to me that, um, you know, this house that his, I always thought, you know, his grandfather purchased this home in 1959. And actually on doing further research, I, I learned that that was the third home that his grandfather had purchased. So if you just imagine like a black man in the 1950s, all of the obstacles that he would have had to go through in order to purchase three homes and for it to just to be taken away in a manner that just seems completely unjustified. Um, you know, was, so the home was, was, was confiscated through an asset forfeiture program. So that's the, that's the most direct way that I saw um, the war on drugs affecting um, black home ownership. More often it was, it was a little more subtle. So for example, you have um, people going to prison and, um, and, uh, you know, the, the grandmother is left at home taking care uh, or the mother or the grandmother taking home, home with the children. And then you might have, you know, one of the siblings or one of the mothers, um, you know, getting HIV, just kind of like 
all kinds of crises of confronting them. And then the, um, the grandmother who owned the home, you know, not paying the tax bill, right? And then the home being seized um, through, through tax liens. So you saw that happen a lot. Or you just have the family experiencing a tremendous loss, you know, the murder of, of a son, and that just kind of really devastating the whole family and them just deciding, you know what, we're going we're gonna to sell this home and we're going to move out to the suburbs because, you know, we just kind of can't deal with the pain of living in this home that we once shared with our, with our son who's gone. Um, and then them selling the home at a very low price to an investor who then turns around and flips it. So there's all kinds of ways, both direct and indirect, that the war on drugs just devastated the community and led to um, a lack of home ownership. So Petworth, the neighborhood I grew up in in 1980, there were 5,000 Black homeowners. And today, there are 3,000 Black homeowners. So homeownership is, Black homeownership is declining in that neighborhood. Yeah, you, so you mentioned sort of a you alluded to a story of um, someone selling their house and not getting what you know an investor might get Um, one of the things that like I as I was like you know looking at buying my first house and I'm just like just general knowledge or general like wisdom has been like oh a house is an investment a house is a way that you build wealth it's only going to increase in value and that wasn't necessarily true for um these families who lived in you know all black neighborhoods can we um talk about how the i guess like the the way that black families were able to build wealth and the way that white families were able to be build wealth during the same time periods were dramatically different based on the neighborhoods that they lived in yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable. It's really remarkable if you look at the trends in prices. So in Petworth, um, homes were selling for between like 5000 and 20000 in the 1950s. And by the end of the 1990s, they're selling for 100000 200000 And that might sound like an increase, but it's not. Right? It, once you take into account the rate of inflation, and the rate of inflation was actually astronomical in the 1980s, it's really, it's just really just increasing right at about the rate of inflation. Um, so that means that you purchase a house in the ni- in 1950, live in it for 50 years, and it barely increases in value. So then it's not, it's not really building wealth for your family um, because, of course, of co- during the course of those 50 years, you've also invested a lot of money in home repairs, you know, in kind of keeping up the house. All kinds of things are going to. I'm sorry if you just bought a home, but there's things in your house that are going to need to be replaced you know, at 20 year intervals, right? The roof, you know, the furnace, right? So, um, so it really becomes more of a money pit than, um, than a source of wealth um, if the home doesn't increase in value. And so if you compare that to homes in white neighborhoods, now really this idea of home ownership as the basis for wealth um, wasn't as prevalent in the 1950s and 1960s. So Homes in white neighborhoods also didn't increase significantly in the 50s and 60s, but between 1980 and 2000, they definitely did. They skyrocketed in value um, in white communities, but not in black communities. So if you bought a home in Petworth in, in 1980, and you know 20 years later, it's really not going to be worth a whole lot more. But if you bought a home in a majority white neighborhood in 1980, um, let's say you bought it for... Um, a few hundred thousand dollars, it's going to be worth like three, four, five, six times as much 20 years later. So it's going to increase much. Those homes increase in value much more quickly in white neighborhoods than they did in black neighborhoods. Right. And then you're, um, you're seeing, or or you kind of 
lay out in the book that you see families decide to sell the, the houses when they're not worth as much just to have um, someone as gentrification begins to, to bloom to have someone sell their house for, you know, three quarters of a million dollars, a house that they sold for, you know, 200, maybe $1,000. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, um, think about investing is it's really hard to predict the future. So right. if you've lived in a home for 50 years and it has an increase in value, there's no reason to think that it will next year. Right. So a lot of people say, well, why do, why did so many people sell their homes in the 1990s? It's like, well, the home <laughs> had an increase in value in 50 years. So you couldn't predict like, Oh, um, it's going to increase in value next year, right? So that's, no one has a crystal ball in that way. Um, but of course, investors have a better sense of the market and they can also be kind of orchestrate their moves a little bit more. Like an investor can say, we're going to buy like five homes on this block and then we're going to invest in them and we're going to flip them. We're going to make them you know, look a certain way and then we're going to kind of sell them all at the same time. So investors have ways of controlling the market that of course, like an individual person doesn't have. Yeah, so um, let's let's say that we're we're moving on through the generations, right? We sort of we started with generation one. We're into generation two now. Um, what is happening to the neighborhoods as we get you know closer into the early tens, twenties? Yeah, so in at the end of the twenty at the end of the twentieth century, um, after spending all this money on the war on drugs, the city is like is having a is continuing to have a significant fiscal crisis, right? And and DC in particular has a, a lot of cities at this time are having fiscal crises, but DC is particular case for a couple of reasons. One, 43% of the land in DC is not taxable. So it's like it's it's owned by the federal government or it's owned by a nonprofit. So it can't, they can't tax it. Um, and then in addition to that, um, Congress places certain restrictions on, on DC. So we can't, for example, have a commuter tax. So we have all these people living out in the suburbs, but then coming into the city, you know, using the highways, using, <laughs> using all the resources, but not paying any taxes. So the city finds itself in really like a, a, a bind. And uh, so the mayor orders a report done, you know, like what can we do to get out of this fiscal crisis? And the report comes back and says, well, you need more upper income residents who uh, don't use resources. So you need childless, <laughs> wealthy people <laughs> to move in the city. So that's kind of like, oh, okay. So of course the city builds condos because that's, you know, so like that's sort of the, I mean, it really was a fiscal crisis and the city, the response, the recommendation given to the city was to generate more property tax and income tax revenue by attracting um, wealthier residents to the city. Now, since the city had experienced all these decades of disinvestment, um, that meant that many of the black residents of the city, you know, never graduated high school, never went to college, and therefore are not really making that much money. I mean, there are there is definitely a significant black middle class in D.C., but there's also a significant black poor to working class in the city. And, and most of the new residents that they attracted were white. Um, so the city went from 70 percent black in 1970 to it's about 40% black today. So the city has become significantly wealthier, wealthier and significantly whiter. And um, so basically the city's goal of attracting 100,000 new wealthier residents was successful. And um, that meant that there's now more wealthy people, more white people in the cities and housing prices have, have skyrocketed. Right, and they, they need somewhere to live, right? So um, you, you talked about just now, it, there is this disinvestment, um, 
and in these communities there are buildings that are essentially ready to be torn down yeah so that that's what begins to happen yeah so the um the neighborhoods that had public housing so the public housing had experienced disinvestment beginning in the late 1970s so for 20 years not getting the upkeep that they needed um so they become all kinds of problems are, are happening and the solution offered by the city is okay well you know these we could fix up these houses but we also could just eradicate them and build like more dense housing in its place so the city generally decided to destroy um the public housing which was mostly like garden apartments so garden apartments um they don't take up they take up way more space than a high rise so you can take a neighborhood that had maybe a thousand people living in garden apartments and build a condo then now you have five thousand people that can fit in there so the city's was going for density because it wanted to attract more residents wanted to fill in um, the downtown areas so the city um engaged in a program and multiple programs that basically involved destroying public housing and building dense housing in its place and originally they said okay well we're going to build this housing and we're going to it's going to be mixed income housing so low-income people can live here but also higher income people so we're not going to take any housing away from poor people but that's what they said but then if you look at what they actually did so if you take for example um capper housing projects the average income in 2003 when it was destroyed was eight thousand dollars so that's like very, very little money. The average, average income of the, of the public housing residents. So when they rebuild, so they destroy it. And then when they rebuild it, they say, okay, now it's available for um, low income residents. If you make $40,000, you can I'm like, okay, well, yes, 40,000 is low income, but the people that are making eight cannot afford to live there. So there was massive displacement of, of very low income residents from public housing. Those of them that were seniors, some were more likely to get placed in senior homes, but the ones that were younger um, were just displaced, completely displaced from the public housing um, units. And those neighborhoods, so a neighborhood like Navy Yard just completely transformed from a neighborhood dominated by public housing, um, light industry, to now like this bustling waterfront area with you know glass and steel condos, all kinds of chain restaurants and businesses. And, um, and almost none of the people that live there in um, the 1990s and 2000s are, are there at all. You, we, we were talking about it much earlier, but we were talking about the, the war on drugs, right? And these um, mandatory minimums. So at the same time, you're having people who are coming home, right? With nothing mm-hmm. to come home to. Yeah, and, and, and coming home to a difficult labor market and a very difficult housing market. So. When I spoke to people who had been incarcerated, I did find that they were generally able to find work, but not always full-time work and often not work that paid very well. So, you know, they come home, they find a job that's, you know, minimum wage, minimum wage in DC is about 16 or $17 an hour. It's simply not enough to afford um, even the cheapest housing. So they, they are able to find work. DC does have a ton of programs for returning citizens, um, which is fantastic. But what DC doesn't really have is enough affordable housing. So even though people are coming home, finding work, which is great, um, they're still living in their sister's basement or their cousin's extra room or living in temporary housing or living in homeless shelters because there simply isn't enough affordable housing in the city. Right, and they're not necessarily inheriting the house that they that they, they grew up in um, for a number of reasons that we've already touched on. Their families maybe sold the house. 
um, they have sisters and brothers and someone else inherited the house um, and all those other things keep people from being able to be homeowners, even though their grand- grandfather maybe bought a house in the 50s. Yeah, and it's remarkable if you think about that, right, that they're, that someone overcame all these obstacles to purchase a home in the 1950s and then their grandkids are homeless. Like, how did that happen? Homeownership is supposed to be the basis of wealth, the basis of financial security. Um, but in a lot of cases, it really hasn't worked out that way for Black families. Right. I think in the book you call it um, intergen- intergenerational downward mobility, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so... I'm going to reintroduce you, Tanya. If you're just tuning in, I am speaking with Tanya Golash-Boza. She is the author of the new book, Before Gentrification, the Creation of D.C.'s Racial Wealth Gap. Today's show is pre-recorded, which means we are not taking calls during the hour, but you can always email talk, that's T-A-L-K, at W-O-R-T-F-M dot O-R-G with any comments or questions. Um, so, Tanya, one of the things that I found... Um, about this sort of gentrification, like something that we don't talk about, right? You can see that the cost of housing has become unaffordable for many people. And that's sort of the like, I don't know, that's like the really basic understanding of what gentrification is um, in my, the way that I see it. Um, But you're also, you see this like, this wiping away of communities that people begin to rely on, um, that sort of changes the way that that a city operates. Um, in what ways did you hear that from the people that you interviewed for the book? Yeah, so going back to the going back to the Arthur Capper um, housing project in Navy Yard, there's a story of a woman who um, she lived in this public housing community for 30 years, and she was very low income. But she lived there for so long, so she knew all the people around her. So if she needed a little extra money, she could um, she could get someone to help her buy some chicken, and then she could fry chicken, and she could have a little she could sell fried chicken in her backyard because she knew people, right? Um, if she needed a ride to store, there was she could always ask someone's nephew, someone's niece, you know, someone that she that she knew to take her to the store. Um, and people would check on her, and people would you know drop off things for her. So she lived in she lived with very little cash but with a ton of a very rich community of people around her. So she was one of the residents that signed all kinds of petitions saying, you know, don't destroy this community. I I don't want to leave. But uh, ultimately the community was unsuccessful um, in their struggle to maintain um, the public housing. And she was removed to another facility. It was only a mile away, but she didn't know anyone there. And she still, and she stuck with the same very limited amount of cash, um, she was very worried about her. Her son was actually incarcerated. She was very worried that he wouldn't be able to find her when she got home. And um, and very tragically, she passed away just a few months after living there. And um, very sadly, her body was found after several days. So she just would not have met that unfortunate end. It's certainly not in the same way if she had been allowed to stay in the community that had nourished her. So there's, so there's, I mean, it's very difficult to survive on very little income, but um, it's even more difficult to do that without a community that supports you. Yeah, you, um, I, I was sort of, I was interested in the, in this um, whole concept because I also think that there's a way that we as like a general society has have moved away from a community approach um, that seems 
it seems sad to me for one like it 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 seems sad to me that like I you know I know my immediate neighbors but I don't really know anyone else in my neighborhood um but this this idea that this one woman was able to like live her life um with a rich community support around her um seems like a a nice way to live even if it is caused by um sort of disinvestment and um a lack of resources. Yeah, I'd say she had the community. Dis- she had the community despite the disinvestment, right? I think she would have been happy to live yeah. in, a, in a better community. But she, despite everything that was going on, she had the community. And another thing that's happening in DC, and this is also happening in cities around the country, but um, you know, we went to our neighborhood schools, so you knew people because you knew everyone on the block. You know, all the kids your same age went to the same school with you. So then. Um, you know, my parents are involved in the PTA, so they know the other parents in the PTA. And another thing that's happening in D.C. today is just the proliferation of charter schools. And one of the challenges there is that you don't know the people in your neighborhood because they're not going to the same school as you. Um, and, of course, again, in D.C., um, the charter schools and the public schools are now they're more diverse than they used to be. But there still are many schools that are almost exclusively black, and those schools are not as well resourced as the, as the schools that are more diverse, the schools that have um, white students in them. Right. Um, so one thing that you you start to talk about in the book is that there's also something that happens when um, the gentrification begins, right? When more white families move in, which is that black families don't necessarily, or black individuals, black, um, like, maybe they they don't have kids right so just a black person who lives in a neighborhood um feels like a, a neighborhood that they've lived in their whole life isn't theirs anymore that people are not are looking at them like they don't belong even though they have lived here or they have hung out on this corner um for the last 50 years and someone is calling the cops on them for just you know hanging out um can, can you elaborate a little bit more on what you heard about um that sort of attitude that is being, um, I guess, foist upon these residents? Yeah. I mean, one, one thing I, one thing I often say is that in many ways, gentrification is very reminiscent of colonization. So this happens where, you know, I went to a restaurant, um, a couple of years ago and I asked the waiter, I was like, Oh, how long have you um, been open? And he's like, Oh, we've been open for seven years. We were one of the first. And it's just like that. So what that means is that he just imagines that before this gentrifier restaurant came in, that there was nothing there. And that's kind of what you see. So the what people, the reason why I wanted to call the book before gentrification is because there's this kind of imagination that before gentrification, there was nothing. There was just devastation and crime. So we see crime here and we came in and we saved the day. And now it's this nice, safe neighborhood. So I think when people when gentrifiers come into a neighborhood and they don't recognize the humanity of the long-term residents, part of it is they're thinking like anything that was here before I got here is not worth anything. Um, and that's, and just as we're talking, it's completely not the case. You know, there was a rich community there. I mean, I grew up, we, um, we, we would jump rope. We play double dutch on the corner. We'd paint hopscotch on the sidewalks. Um, we'd go to the arcade. Um, there was live music at the, um, at the clubs close by there was like all kinds of life <laughs> and vitality in the neighborhood. And this idea that, that that's worth nothing, that that's just something to be, you know, eradicated and gentrified is, is super frustrating for long-term residents. And, and it, so, so that's kind of what I think is underlying 
this feeling, um, the newer residents are looking at them like they don't belong because they don't imagine the neighborhood as really being a place, even a place that someone could belong to um, before they got there. Yeah. Um, So I, one of the things that I was sort of, it was rolling around in my head as I was reading your book um, is the, how, how much of, of where we currently are with gentrification and then, the neighborhoods really changing and there being more wealthy white people in these neighborhoods that have um, for the past several decades been majority black neighborhoods. How much of that of that feels on purpose, right? It feels like, okay, um, these people move here. We're going to, you know, white flight's going to happen. <laughs> I don't think there's anyone who's actually making, making this plan, but white flight happens. We disinvest in the neighborhood. They, have there's rampant crime that happens in there making um it unsafe for for even the people who live there to to be there um and then we come in with our problem solving that really means that we're going to make it so that you can't afford to live in, in the neighborhood um that you that your family originally settled in yeah and i think part of it is part of it is how Part of it is how um, people that make decisions, decision makers are imagining communities. Like what, when um, when someone who is in a position of authority sees a school and they see that the school has all black students, um, you know, because of the way that racism has shaped the way that we think about things, they might just think, you know, that school doesn't need as many, as many resources or those kids just need, we just need to make sure that we have um, a probation officer stationed at that school. Um, and then that same person might see a school with mostly white kids and think, oh, the school needs um, a, a new paint job or needs a, 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 another school nurse or an art teacher. I mean, really racism is so deeply embedded into our psyches that it, it, it affects these decisions um, sometimes in a subtle way that we can't even see. And, I'll, and there's another, thinking of schools, so um, I'll tell you a story about the neighborhood where I live right now. It's very interesting. Um, the neighborhood where I live, well, it's, it's the same neighborhood that I grew up in, just a different part. There's there's one school that is um, that has historically been almost all black. And now white people are starting to send their kids to that school. So I think the school is now up to like 25% white. So that's an interesting development. So these white people that live in the neighborhood are thinking, you know, like, um, I can send my schools, my kids to the school that's majority black, also has some Latino kids. So, this, so that that one school is relatively diverse um, and it has a lot of, it's a beautiful school. It was recently renovated and it's just like an absolutely gorgeous um, facility. But what's fascinating is that like six blocks north is a school that is 99.8% black and Latino. And then six blocks east is another school that's also like almost all black and Latino. So, so the white families in the neighborhood, again, are seeing this brand new school with a beautiful new building and they're deciding to send their kids there. But they're very, very much not deciding to send their kids to these other two schools. So still like the racial composition of schools is still affecting um, who decides to go there as well as the kind of resources that, that the schools are getting. So even if they're not, there's no, it's obviously there's no law that says, um, you know, we're going to invest more money in white schools. Like that's obviously not the laws, but still these subtle decisions that people, that parents are making 
and that decision makers are making are affecting um, these schools. And of course, the school that's becoming more diverse, meaning that more white people are going to it, um, has higher test scores now and has, you know, and is attracting better teachers and has a has a really fantastic principal. But all those people are attracted to this place that they see as worthy. And they're not seeing the same thing in these other two schools that are literally like just a few blocks away. The the old adage that history repeats itself. Yeah. 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 Um, what's it? I, so I know that um, you, you know, talk about in your book that you moved away for various reasons. What is it like coming back to D.C. now, especially after having written this book? Yeah, you know, it's um, lots of mixed feelings about coming back. I think um, one thing that I think about a lot these days is, you know, the neighborhood that I grew up in was working to middle class black, but also had quite a few um, very well, very wealthy um, black families. Actually, I was thinking like just behind me was the um, the guy who was the chief of surgery at Howard University. There was a dentist on our block. And I was like, our neighborhood had lots of people who had enough money to afford nice things, but there weren't really that many nice things in our neighborhood. Like there were no sit down restaurants. There were no ice cream parlors. There were no coffee shops. There were no wine bars. Um, but the the people that lived in my neighborhood certainly could afford those things. So today there are. So on the one hand, it's like, yeah, it's nice. You know, and on the corner from my house, there's a nice tavern. I can get a glass of Sauvignon Blanc and some mussels. I'm like, this is nice. I'm glad it's here. But really, it should have been here, you know, 40 years ago, because um, I mean, I couldn't afford it as a child. But certainly, you know, after I went to college and I was living at home, I had disposable income. I certainly I was eating out at places like that, but just not in my neighborhood because it didn't exist. So it is kind of it's sad to see that my neighbor had to wait until it had a significant amount of white people before we begin to see these very nice um, businesses. And the other thing that I, that I see that I'm heartened to see is the neighborhood ha- and the city has has begun to invest more in preserving black culture, particularly um, go-go music. So now like this past summer at the, at the DC Public Library, there were um, multiple events that hosted local go-go bands. Go-go is um, DC's indigenous music that's just like amazing and, and you don't find it anywhere else and it's live music and it's really part of the culture. So to see the city being proactive about preserving that feels like um, a pushback against the erasure that comes along with gentrification. Yeah. Tanya, is there anything that we didn't quite touch on that you feel like is important for our listeners to, to know about um, DC, about gentrification, about your book? Yeah. I mean, the one thing that we didn't touch on is just thinking about um, what this crisis of affordability means um, for cities. And one thing is that, you know, we are, Cities are changing today with the advent of remote work. So, you know, like I could do my job remotely, you know, maybe you can do your job remotely, but the people that sweep the streets, they can't do their jobs remotely. The people that drive the buses, the people that drive taxis, that drive Ubers, that clean office buildings. And those people increasingly are not paid enough to afford to live in cities. So we really are setting ourselves up for a big problem where like, if we don't either pay people more or create more affordable housing, um, cities across the country are going to face this crisis because, yeah, the remote workers, they, if they're not getting paid enough, they can go live somewhere cheaper. But um, people that need to come into work um, to make the city actually run, um, they, they need to be able to afford to live in the city because the city needs workers and workers need housing. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. 
Um, my guest today has been Tanya Galesh Bozal. She is the author of the new book, Before Gentrification, the Creation of DC's Racial Wealth Gap. Tanya, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jade. It was really fun to talk to you. And that does it for A Public Affair. I've been your host, Jade Siri Ramos. I am also the producer of A Public Affair. Big shout out to our engineer today. And as always, thank you to WORT News Director, Sholly Pittman. Up next, we have Letters and Politics. Thank you for listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. No power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions. Live and direct, we're coming.